Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Lucas. Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Father, quiet our hearts now, we pray, to hear this radical message, a message that stands in such stark contrast to another message or collection of messages that we hear about sexuality on a daily, even hourly sometimes basis. God, give us ears to hear, not just outward physical ears, God, but spiritual ears to hear your will for our sexuality here in the pages of this book and coming even from the mouth of your eternal son. God, we need you. We need you to purify our sexuality. And we pray you would do that this morning by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Sex has this explosive quality to it. In a way, it's kind of even like nuclear power. Stick with me. Uh, When nuclear power is contained and operating within a nuclear reactor, it can be harnessed for incredible good. I mean, it can light and even power entire cities. They say it is by far even one of the most efficient ways to generate power at scale. And I know because I checked with my brother-in-law who is in the power industry. He's one of the they's that say this. But if that nuclear reactor breaks down and this explosive power is unleashed from its core, if it breaks out, then the chaos and destruction can be utterly devastating. But another way these two explosive powers are similar is that when nuclear power does break free from the confines it was designed to operate within, the impact of this is often invisible. Think Three Mile Island, 1979. Think Chernobyl, the meltdown in Ukraine in in 1986, when in both cases, hundreds and even thousands of people were poisoned unknowingly 
because they were just too close to the meltdown. I want you to consider that. If you had been walking around the streets of those cities these days, these deadly days, when when people were being poisoned, you probably would not have known the difference. It would have just felt like a normal day. This explosive yet invisible quality of nuclear power is the very thing that makes it so dangerous because the devastation it can cause can't always be detected until it's far too late. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to show us that our sexuality basically can work just like that. When it's operating within the confines it was meant to operate, namely within marriage, sex is one of the most beautiful, powerful, even heavenly aspects of life on earth. But when it breaks free from those confines, King Jesus is going to tell us it can quite literally lead to hell. But interestingly enough, it is not just outward acts of sexual impurity that even pose the greatest threat to us. It is the invisible devastation that comes from the sexual impurity of the heart. We're going to see today what's at stake with our sexuality and also hopefully get a sense of how to harness its power for good. A few weeks ago, uh, Scott Strubing preached a wonderful sermon on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And in that sermon, Jesus makes uh, some pretty important claims. He says that first, he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, but he has come to fulfill them. And in that same passage, he also said that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the Old Testament law, then we would never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to kind of hold on to those two ideas for a moment. Jesus has not come to abolish but to fulfill the Old Testament, and we need righteousness that surpasses the teachers of the Old Testament, okay? Hold on to those, because then two weeks ago, Greg preached another great sermon on the passage just before this one, which was on our relationships and anger. And that passage began with the same formula that's repeated in our passage here at the beginning and and will be repeated for the next, uh, it'll be four weeks after this, six weeks total. This is the center, the body of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in the beginning of each of these teachings, you have heard it said... And then he quotes some Old Testament command, Old Testament law. And then he says, but I say to you, and he explains the deeper spiritual intent of that Old Testament law. And what I want to do first today is to just sort of connect a few of these dots, because I think this is going to be really helpful in the coming weeks. When Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, chances are this doesn't necessarily mean that there was something wrong with it. It certainly doesn't mean that. And it probably also doesn't just mean that he's going to do a few things that were sort of predicted in the Old Testament law, although he certainly does that. This phrase, to fulfill, can also mean to basically fill something up to the top, to sort of top it off, if you will. 
And when we read this formula at the beginning of these six teachings, at the very center of this sermon, I think we're supposed to see, oh, okay, that's what Jesus meant when he said this. The idea is that most of these Galilean commoners in the crowd would have heard these Old Testament commands taught by the scribes and Pharisees, but they often were taught, they taught them in incomplete and insincere ways. And so Jesus is here as as God's own son in human flesh to sort of top off their teaching for us, if you will, to give us the more full and complete picture of what God had always intended when he inspired these Old Testament texts to be written. And in particular, there's one very consistent way that Jesus both critiques and corrects the Old Testament teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had a tendency to teach the Old Testament as if it was only concerning outward bodily obedience rather than a deeper, more spiritual obedience of the heart, the inner life. And that, I'm convinced, is the specific sense in which our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just that we have to do a better job than they do at following the Old Testament law in an outward bodily way. It's that we need a different kind of righteousness altogether that flows from a new and purified heart. We're going to see that general concept repeated over and over in these next five passages. And now with that in mind, I want to look at our passage today. Jesus starts here by quoting from the Ten Commandments. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit murder. There's the outward bodily command. Then he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see the contrast? Notice Jesus is talking, by all accounts, about a far lesser sin that doesn't even happen in an outward bodily way. And he's claiming if you sin in that way, in that invisible way, in your heart, it's as though the outward damage is already done. And the powerful effect of that teaching should not be lost on us. Because chances are most people in this room even have not committed adultery. Maybe some of you have, but most of you probably haven't. And so if that were the only standard of righteousness we were accountable to, the outward bodily one, well then by that standard, most of us in this room would be righteous in that way. But when you consider Jesus' standard of righteousness in his heavenly kingdom, all of a sudden that whole equation is is completely flipped upside down. Instead of almost all of us meeting this standard, I have to imagine chances are none of us meet this standard. Who can credibly claim that they have never looked at another person with lustful intent ever? Who could claim that? Did you see what Jesus is doing here? He's upping the stakes of our sin by helping us to see where the outward sin comes from. And it comes 
from sinful, sexually impure hearts, and it is the heart that is the ultimate underlying problem that leads to the outward impurities, and the heart is a deep and serious problem whether or not it leads to the outward impurities. And next, to drive that point home, Jesus applies this concept in two very visceral ways. He says, if your right eye or your hand causes you to sin, you should tear it out and throw it away, or you should cut it off. Now again, notice Jesus is contrasting an outward bodily reality, an eye, a hand, with an inner heart reality, like the temptation to sin that it might cause. And some scholars point out that in reality, it is kind of hard to see how an eye or a hand even could cause us to sin. Certainly, they're part of our experience of, of the everyday world. But to say that the eye, physically, the, the physical thing actually causes us to sin seems like a little bit of a stretch. And I think that's the point, actually. They don't truly cause us to sin. Our sinful hearts cause us to sin. So this should sound rather extreme when we hear it, but if they did cause us to sin, and that's the point, then it would be perfectly reasonable to cut them off or to pluck them out. The fact that these sound, frankly, and are so extreme is all part of the point that Jesus is trying to make. In fact, if we think the point is that they shouldn't sound extreme, we may actually be missing the point. The whole idea here is that the first part of this formula does seem rather extreme and, and even misguided, and it should seem that way. Imagine one of your friends shows up to church next week without a hand. No hand. And you ask, what happened? What happened? He said, it was just it was causing me to sin, so. <laughs> causing me to sin, right? It's extreme. It's, it seems misguided. That's the point. It's almost like, whoa, buddy, I mean, are you really not going to sin now because you don't have that hand? Is it really work that way? So we're supposed to hear this and think, what in the world? Jesus, listen, calm down. Pluck out my eye. Cut off my hand. What is the big deal here? Until he says, or it is better. That, that's terrible and ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? But it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And immediately we should all think, huh, yeah, I guess that is better. I guess I do value the outward appearance of my life as righteous far more than the inner spiritual reality of it. That is the point of this teaching. The point is to put a spotlight on how deadly serious we take our outward bodily lives and by comparison how unserious we are about the inner life. And, and I'm convinced, according to Jesus, via Matthew here, here's why that's a huge deal, the claim of our passage. is because our outward sexual purity 
only matters if it flows from a sexually pure heart. Let's say that again. Our outward sexual purity, it only matters if it flows from a sexually pure heart. Now, I have to tell you at first, I, when I wrote that sentence, I had to stop myself and ask, do I mean that? It, is that true? Is that what Jesus is saying? Because this pretty clearly suggests, at least under certain circumstances, a, a very good thing like outward obedience may not ultimately matter. There, there, there's just something about that that seems so extreme, doesn't it? As if, look, you may never commit adultery, ever. You may not even get close to committing adultery in your entire life. And in the end, you're not committing adultery may not even matter because your heart is adulterous. That is just wild. It is hard to even quantify just how radical this is, but look, I don't want you to miss it because it is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. This teaching should have colossal implications for the way we approach our sexuality. And so to try and grasp what some of those are, here are just three questions I want us to consider. First is simple, but it's big. Do you realize the spiritual stakes of your sexuality? Do you realize the spiritual stakes? Now here I'm gonna argue as Jesus does in our passage, there is far more at stake with sexual sin than simply doing a few things that are on God's no-no list. I'm gonna argue that the state of your soul is at stake in the way you approach your sexuality. But in order, in order to understand what is at stake if we cross certain sexual lines that God has established, first we have to establish what those boundary lines even are especially these days. We can't just assume that. Uh, I want you to notice this passage is not just about adultery. As if it's only relevant for those who are married or tempted by someone who's married. It starts with the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But the point is that even just with internal lust, it's as if the damage of adultery has been done to your heart. You don't have to be married or even tempted by someone who's married to apply this to your life. If we walk away from this service without seeing the stakes of our sexuality as unbelievably high, then we have missed it. We've missed what Jesus has said. This applies to anyone who has a sexually impure heart that may lead them to cross the boundary lines that God has put in place for their sexuality and friends in one way or another, that is all of us. It's all of us. So what are those God-given boundaries? Now, I have to say this. The Bible, pra praise God, the Bible is incredibly clear on this. Praise God. God has designed sex to be enjoyed in one and only one context, and that is the lifelong spiritual union of one man and one woman 
that is called marriage. Any sexual acts, or as we see here, even fantasies of the heart that we experience concerning anyone who is not our husband, if we're a woman, a wife, or our wife, if we are a husband, any one of them, they're all sinful. They are not of God. Now, you might be wondering, well, what if I've had very different sexual desires than that for as long as I can remember? Does this mean that God has, has made me in this way and then turned around and made it sinful for me to be this way? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Now, to be created with female biology, for instance, is to be created by God as a woman and to be created with male biology is to be designed by God as a man. So that's how God created you. And he's shown us in his word that this means something very specific and concrete about your sexuality. Before you get upset with me for saying that so clearly, I just want you to look at your Bible this morning. Look at the passage we're looking at and, and just be honest with yourself. Can you not see that Christ himself has said this right here as plain as day? E even sexual desires for someone who is not your husband or not your wife will lead you to hell. If the Jesus you believe in doesn't teach that, then, then I'm sorry, but you don't believe in this Jesus. You don't believe in the real Jesus. And church, this is not some peripheral detail in the story of Scripture either. The entire Bible begins with the story of him very purposefully creating one of these men and one of these women for one another. He joins them together in the sexual union of marriage so that by it, they can fill the world with, well, us, the human race. It's the whole story. The entire Old Testament is the story of God then multiplying one of these very human families, one heterosexual marriage and generation at a time, so that eventually, through his son Jesus right here, he could redeem all of humanity. This is not peripheral. There are no intimate same-sex relationships positively described in the entire Bible there are even explicit, these are even explicitly condemned, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and all Christians throughout all of church history have unanimously agreed on this until about 100 years ago. Friends, listen. Please listen to God himself in human flesh right here in your Bible. He's very clear. The stakes of your sexuality are far greater and more spiritual than this world will ever tell you. Do you realize that? Or are you treating your sexuality as if your life is just outward and bodily? Now, in light of all that, I want to talk with our students right now. Uh, I imagine, I also know from experience, there's a lot going on in your life these days. 
you're, you're developing friendships, including friends of the opposite sex, often for the first time, at least apart from your parents' social circle. Meanwhile, hopefully you're at least starting in some way to think through your sexuality and what it's all about, hopefully in a healthy way. But at the same time, you're still very much under your parents' authority in, in these ways, as we heard last week. And, and what all of that may amount to on your part is a bit of frustration, uh, because on one hand, your world is, is getting much bigger and you're starting to find your place in it, and, th- and that's great. But on the other hand, just a guess, probably a safe guess, but you probably also feel a bit restricted in your life. Some of your friends have had phones for years now, and you still don't. Some of your friends have had multiple boyfriends and girlfriends, and you're not even allowed to date. Some of your friends uh, don't have as tight or strict a curfew as you, just to name a few things. And I imagine some of these restrictions may seem just unnecessarily extreme to you, but if you truly understood the spiritual stakes of your sexuality, for instance, they might not. They might not. You may be tempted to giggle as I say this. Again, I think it's part of the point of of the teaching. It is better, at least the first part is funny, it is better to enter the kingdom of heaven with no phone, no dating experience, and a 9.30 p.m. curfew. It's best better than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Students, as extreme as these precautions may seem to you, listen, they're not. They're wise. And here's why, it's because your sexuality is not just about having some fun or expressing your inner feelings. The stakes are much higher than that. Your sexuality is about God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. Now parents, if we want our kids to see this, of course it's gonna take more than just rules and restrictions uh, to keep them from committing outward bodily sin. We can succeed in restraining our kids' bodily sin. We can get really good at that. And meanwhile, fail miserably at shepherding their heart towards sexual purity. We have to give our kids a glorious and heavenly vision for their sexuality. So that when the world tells them and tries to tell them they're basically just a body and the best possible thing is just to do whatever they want with that body that makes them feel good on the inside, they know to say, no, there's way more at stake here than that. My sexuality is about God and his kingdom. But parents, if we are going to give them that vision for their sexuality, then we have to have that same vision for sexuality ourselves. First, do you realize the spiritual stakes of your sexuality? And second, are you willing to take seemingly extreme measures to guard your inner purity? This, I think, is the takeaway of these two visceral applications. Not just go ahead, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye, right? As if you can fix your sexually impure heart by just restricting the functionality of your body in some way. It doesn't work that way. That's not the point. The point is, though... We should be willing to do things that most people would consider very extreme in an outward bodily sense to avoid the eternal judgment that a sexually impure heart can lead us to. 
In other words, if your job puts you in a place of constant sexual temptation, you should find a new job. If you can't use self-control with your phone, you should lock that thing down at the very least, if not get rid of it altogether. So here are, here are the kinds of things I think this also means for a few different groups in the church. Uh, first, for those who are single or even engaged. I think this means setting very clear expectations for your future relationships and also being very clear about those expectations with anyone that you get to know in a closer way or eventually date. If you let the light shine that you are a follower of Jesus and this is how you live and they go running for the hills, the light worked, okay? This means having a clear vision also for your future sexuality within marriage that you allow to guide you in your dating relationships, listen, far more than any petty superficial preferences you have for the ideal or most attractive partner. Young men, I think some of you may need to hear this as well. It may be that you are struggling so much with pornography because you have far too much free time for your own good and not nearly enough responsibility in life. That may be. If you want to grow out of that, if you wanna mature from that, here's what you might need. You might need a challenging job, a godly wife, and Lord willing, someday a few children to take care of. You have to see the spiritual stakes in all this. Listen, take some risks. Find one of the godly single women, even here at church or somewhere else. Ask her out. Get serious about finding a godly wife. Now, unlike those women online, this one will expect things of you. She will not love everything you do. And at times, it will be difficult to work all that out and to do well together. But listen, she will be the greatest gift that God could give you if your aim is to become like Jesus. This is a bit of a strange application, but I think it's valid. Brothers, putting yourself out there a little bit and actually trying to find a wife, it may feel like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye to you. It may feel scary and intimidating. Uh, you might get hurt. Marriage might wind up being really hard. That's fine. Listen, do it anyways. Do it. Because it is better to enter heaven with some awkward dating moments in your past than to go to hell because you lack the courage to try and find a wife. Brothers, do you see the spiritual stakes here? Have some faith and go find a godly wife. Next, a brief word for those who are dating and engaged. Just wanna say very clearly, it is sin to move in together and to share a home before marriage. It is. It does not come anywhere close to taking sexual sin this seriously. It prioritizes outward bodily convenience 
almost completely at the expense of the spiritual significance of that relationship. And it contradicts God's design that in marriage we are to leave our father and mother and to cleave to our spouse and create a new household with them. We don't get to define the appropriate purpose and ways to create a household with someone. God has already done that very clearly. And and by the way, he did it on the first page of the book. So it may seem extreme to take all this seriously. It may. I think that's the point. We should be willing to do things that are seemingly extreme in an earthly way to protect our inner purity. And finally, for married men and women, I think we need to talk about technology and entertainment. I have to imagine the authors of Scripture could never have even fathomed the world of sexual temptation we are all surrounded by every minute of our waking lives. And then there is a whole nother digital world in our pockets, conveniently waiting to consume our inner life, free of charge, anytime we have a free minute. I know from experience, if you are a man with a YouTube account, who is interested in things like news and mountain biking and technology and the NBA and even the Bible, these algorithms will also assume that you're interested in women's yoga videos. Beautiful teenage TikTok influencers. Maybe worse. And if you even stop scrolling for just a few seconds to take a look, they'll know you're interested. This is the world we live in. Are your eyes open to that or not? If not, you might want to consider plucking them out. Whether it's pornography, often for men, or for women, just unhealthy fantasies even about celebrity crushes, or, 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 or those romance novels you can secretly read in your Kindle app on your phone, it is easier than ever to find this kind of content, easier than ever to hide it, and sometimes incredibly difficult even to avoid. At the very least, if we want even just a fighting chance at keeping our hearts sexually pure, then church, it is going to require some outward bodily inconveniences. I might suggest one, which is either just, again, seriously locking down the way you use your phone or just getting rid of it altogether. Again, you might be thinking, well, I can't do that. I have to get another job. I think that's the point. That might be worth considering too. I had a whole section here on how to limit your phone usage. I'm kind of a technology guy, so I've done that a few years ago, and, and, and it's been incredible for me. I'm going to cut that this morning. Uh, I'm going to try and write a blog post and share it another time because I think this is more important. For obvious reasons, this application has been primarily negative in nature, and here's what we should be willing to do to avoid sexual purity. I think another more positive application is also appropriate Husbands and wives, we have to really strive for a healthy, loving, and pure habit 
of sexual intimacy in marriage. Nothing on earth will be more effective for keeping the depths of your heart sexually pure than a real, passionate, and spiritual commitment to sexual intimacy with your spouse. This is not optional or even secondary to a healthy marriage. It's, it's absolutely vital. We are bodily creatures. And by the way, this is not the time in the sermon for some glib, immature joke about how great sex is and all this, right? This is serious. It is a joyful thing, of course, at least it ought to be, but it is also sacred. It is weighty. The stakes here are heavenly and eternal. Listen, don't cheapen it. Don't cheapen it. Husbands, wives, take this seriously. Talk openly about it. Pray diligently. Be vulnerable with one another. Confess whatever sins necessary so that you can truly experience pure, God-honoring sexual intimacy with your spouse regularly. But finally, and most important, by far, most importantly, here is the question that far outweighs all the others. Number three, has God purified your heart from sexual sin? Has he? For some of you, I imagine it's beginning to set in that you have one body and one life to live with that body. God has always had a specific design for your sexuality and for reasons maybe only you know, your outer life and more importantly, your inner life are impure. You still have eyes to see. You still have hands to touch, but you don't have a pure heart. And the truth is, you know, you'd be better off without the eyes and the hands if you could only get that back. Can I get that back, you might be asking. You can. You can. Because here's how this story will progress from this point. After this sermon, Jesus will go on to be confronted by the scribes and Pharisees he's correcting here. They will eventually be so fed up with him that they have him crucified. Uh, to protect their outward appearance of righteousness, they will murder the one with whom God is well pleased. He will die for your sinful, adulterous heart. He will be buried. He will rise again in victory over it and he will offer us new eternal life in him. Meanwhile, many of these sexually impure Galileans sitting there in the crowd listening to his sermon will go on to trust him, to know him, to follow him. They'll be forgiven, redeemed, and welcomed into his body, even, the church. It will be as if their formerly, former bodily lives of sexual sin and impurity were crucified with him on that cross. 
and they will be given heavenly access to his perfect, eternal, sexually pure righteousness. And that community, friends, that they will be welcomed into, that community called the church is the very same community that we exist as today. On one hand, this passage certainly ups the stakes of our outward sexuality. If we live to gratify unrepentant way with lust-filled hearts, we will be judged. But on the other hand, if we sit at Jesus' feet here and we receive what it is that he has to say with humble, faith-filled hearts, if we look to him for the forgiveness and new life we all so desperately need, all of us, all of us will get a new, pure heart. And that new purified heart will empower us to live sexually pure lives, lives that we could never otherwise live on our own. John says it this way in his epistle, 1 John. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, you might say, purify us from all unrighteousness. Listen, that is the only way to have a sexually pure heart with righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's the only way. Friends, whatever sexual impurity you're holding on to, whether it's outward sins that you've committed in the body or inward sin that you commit in your heart, listen, don't keep that in the dark. Confess it. Turn from it. Bring the inner reality in conformity to what you want the outward reality to be. Do whatever it takes to rid your heart of the deception and sin that can lead you to hell. And I want to say this. This is not just a church for those who manage to maintain the appearance of outward sexual purity. It's not enough. This is a church for those whose hearts have been made pure by confessing our sexual sins and relying on Christ alone to purify our impure hearts. So has God purified your heart of sexual sin in that way? Especially these days, this new sexually pure life that we all share in Christ it is absolutely indispensable to the mission and purpose that God has given us in the world today. As we get ready to celebrate our five-year anniversary in just a few weeks, please know there is no sin more likely to destroy everything that God has done here in and through Redemption Church. And at the same time, there is no testimony more powerful 
than a spiritual family of formerly impure idolaters of the heart, both inside and out, who have been transformed into sexually pure husbands, wives, single people, students, children, all joyfully living for this kingdom together with pure hearts in a world that is consumed by sexual chaos and sin. There would be no more powerful, explosive testimony even in the world than that. Don't forget, this will make us stick out. Kind of like a city on a hill or like a bold dash of salt in a bland meal. And I imagine sticking out in this way may prove, especially these days, to be very difficult in our world. But in the world to come, we will finally see there was no better way to live.